stand together um, to read God's Word. We're going to read today from Matthew chapter 25, and it's a long passage, verses 14 through 30 is the parable of the talents. And so it's a long passage, so we'll do it a little bit different. I will read parts of it, and then you will read parts. Um, now, this particular part, as you can see, is not in bold, or as I would call it, it's light-skinned. So I will read the light-skinned parts, and then there's other parts that are in bold, and y'all will read those parts. It just made sense to me to do it that way, okay? So let's, let's come before God's Word, and in the last part, we'll all read it together as well. So let's, let me start. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one, he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately, the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man, who, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, master, I, master you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. And now let's read the last part together. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him, and thrown this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a rough end to that text. I want to talk today from the subject, living what you believe. Living what you believe. And 
I hope that you'll see as we go through this text that that is actually true of every one of us. We are living out by our actions what we believe in the deepest parts of our heart. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. and We pray that by the work of the Holy Spirit, you will press it onto our hearts and minds today. Lord, it's our desire that we will serve you out of a disposition of believing in your goodness. So show us yourself today that we may love you and serve you with our whole lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I know some of you are thinking you came in here and we read the scripture and you're wondering, well, what if Matthew, the writer of this gospel, had been from North Philly? I know you were thinking that. What might it have sounded like? And so what I want to do, if you'll put the first five verses up there again, what I want to do is to read to you the North Philly version of Matthew 5, 14 through 30. Now you see this pericope, that's, that's a big word that means story. This pericope starts with the word for, and it, it's the introduction to a story. But we're from Philly, so we know that for just won't do. So here's how it starts. So what had happened was, <laughs> dude was about to head out. He hollered at his young bulls and gave him, them his loot. The first bull got five Johns. The next, two Johns. And little man got one John. Each according to his swag. Then he dipped. Immediately, the bull who got five Johns got his hustle on. He bought huge cases of water and Gatorade and sold them on Broad Street until he made five more Johns. The dude with two Johns said, bet, and did the same thing. Little man said, nah, I ain't for it. He stashed his John at the crib and chilled. Amen. That's the North Philly version, y'all. As best as an old white man can do it. I know my language is usually a couple generations behind, but I'm trying, y'all. It's all right. Hey, uh, Jesus is teaching here in the most familiar way that he teaches. He almost always teaches in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in parables. Parables are uh, words that talk about things that are very familiar to us, but he's speaking of kingdom of God realities. He's pointing us by natural things that we can relate to, to realities of the kingdom of God. And that's what he's doing here. This is also, this particular parable is a part of the last of the five discourses that Jesus gives in Matthew's gospel. It's called the Olivet Discourse because he is on the Mount of Olives with his disciples downloading the last information he's going to give them before he moves into his passion. And so he is giving his disciples what they need to fortify and keep them. He's giving them many words of warning as we'll see. Uh, it, earlier in this chapter is the parable of the ten 
virgins. If you remember, that is where they were going to a wedding and five of them brought extra oil with them. The others didn't bring extra oil and the bridegroom came late and those who didn't have the extra oil, they weren't prepared. They were left out of the wedding. And so that was a parable of warning. And so is this. It's a parable of judgment as we read the last part of the parable that's hard to hear those words, but we want to unpack it and understand it. But the thing that I want you to understand, if you get nothing else out of today, is simply, and it's from the title, is that we all actually live out uh, by our lives what we believe. Sometimes we don't want to believe that because uh, we want to believe that I believe all these good things about God, but our life shows something else. And so we'll look at that as we look through these verses today. So there's three main points that I have for you today. The first one is this. God reveals His loving care. God reveals His loving care. He lavishes His grace on His people. Look in the middle of verse 14. It says, He called His own servants and entrusted His possessions to them. So in, in this parable, the master gives to his servants his possessions. If we looked at that and translated the Greek in a very literal way, it would say he, he handed over to them what belonged to him. So that's what the master is doing here. And if we understand anything about this parable and other parables, it's not too hard to figure out that the master stands for God and the servants are those who are servants of God, who uh, may be in the, the church. And so he says that uh, God is the one who gives and hands over to us the stuff that belongs to him. That's what God does. And that's what he has done for you and for me. Everything that you have has come from God. Every breath that you breathe is a gift from God. So whatever gifts you have, not just material things, but those immaterial things like the mind that God has given you. And we have some sharp minds at Epiphany Fellowship. Some of you have PhDs now. You're, you're those sharp minds. Now there's other people, and even my PhDs know that, that are just as smart as any PhD, but they haven't had uh, the ability to go through that course of action. But you, you have just as bright of a mind as a PhD. Can a PhD say amen to that? Okay, come on, Tiffany. Say it. Tiffany said amen. Okay, other people saying amen. There's too many PhDs around here. I'm just a dumb preacher just trying to do my thing. But God has given you so many gifts. Uh, I, I know of uh, several people here who have been working on their bachelor's degree for 10 years and more because they haven't had the luxury of being funded and having parental support and other things that allowed them to work on it. But they're working on it still. They haven't given up. Now, if that's the case, then maybe God didn't give you the money that you wish you had to do it or the support that you wish you had, but you did it. You're in the middle of it anyway. You haven't given up. God has given you perseverance and strength that I don't know if I have at all. And so whatever you have, God has given it to you. 
God lavishes his care on us. Some of you think that you woke up this morning because the alarm clock went off. But I'm here to tell you that's not what woke you up. God said... God said, you have another day on my planet. God said, I want air to come in your lungs. God said, I'm going to keep your heart beating a little bit longer. God woke you up this morning and started you on your way. God is the one who we owe everything to. And God doesn't skimp when he gives out stuff. We look at this parable and we're immediately struck by the fact that he gave different amounts to different people. Five two, and one. Not Johns, but talents. He gave them talents. Now, what does it mean by talent? This is not America's got talent kind of talents. A talent was a weight of measure. It, it, it roughly weighed out about 75 pounds worth of gold. A talent is roughly worthy to 6,000 days of labor for a day laborer in that time. That's 20 years of work. You got it at one time. You didn't earn it. It wasn't yours. But the master said, here, you can have it. You use it. So, so before you start feeling too bad for a little man who just got one talent, just realize he got anywhere from between 700000 to $1 million. I don't feel bad for the boy. I just don't. It's hard for me to feel bad for him. The truth is God lavishes gifts on his people, not some of his people and looks over others. God lavishes gifts on all of his children. But God is also infinitely wise. So we see in verse 15, in the middle of that verse, when he gives the different talents, it says, depending on each one's ability depending on their ability. God has given you what you need to accomplish what he's called you to accomplish in this world. He hasn't left anything out. He hasn't made a mistake. He ha he's never going to look back and say, oh, I forgot this. I do that every day. But God never does that. He hasn't forgotten to give you anything that you need to accomplish the purpose that he has created you for. He's created you for something and he's given you what you need. Uh, I look at it this way. In, in my house and in all of your houses, apartments, buildings, we have, uh, we have a box in our basement with circuit breakers. It's also called a distribution box because it distributes the electrical current in such a way that each part of the house gets what it needs. But when something is getting too much electrical current, what the box does is the circuit breaks off and the power goes out to that particular part of the house. And it does that because when the current becomes too great, it begins to overheat. And if something doesn't stop it at that point in time, it will continue to overheat until a fire breaks out. And now we have no more house. We have no more building. Uh, so a wise designer, when there's electricity in a building, makes sure that there's a distribution box there so that uh, when something gets too much, it cuts off automatically. God is the universal, omnipotent distributor box of the universe. He gives to each circuit, to each 
person to each part in his kingdom exactly what is needed to accomplish the purpose that you were made for. God's given you that. So he knows what you need. Here's the problem. Many times we spend more of our life looking at what someone else has than we do enjoying and working with God, uh, what God has given us. It's so easy to be jealous of someone else and what they have. And the truth is, most of the time, they're probably jealous about something you have that they want as well. It's a foolish waste of time, but it's something that so often we end up getting caught in. Uh, we, we get caught in comparison. Why don't I have this? Let me give you an illustration. I have three grandchildren. My oldest is nine, about to go into fourth grade. My youngest is one. Now, for my fourth grader, she's learning to write in cursive, and I know that a lot of you, especially younger folk, don't even know how to write in cursive, and you don't care, and you don't want to because you type everything. But she's learning to write in cursive, so I want to get her a nice ink pen where she can, you know, just flows. Not one of those cheap little ones, but a nice one that flows, and she can work on her writing. But what if I say, you know what, it wouldn't be fair if I get one for my nine-year-old, but I don't get one for my little guy, Soren. Soren's one. He deserves an ink pen, too. Let me give him an ink pen. See, in a year from now, Mariah's going to be 10 years old with an ink pen and show me how she's learned to write in cursive. And we're going to go to Soren and say, oh, I know Soren, one-eyed Soren. He's a nice little kid. He's two years old. He poked his eye out with an ink pen last year. Why did his grandfather ever give him that? I'm just trying to be fair. Look, I know better than to give a one-year-old an ink pen. And God knows exactly what to give you for what he's called you to do in this world. He hasn't made any mistakes. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. I am encouraging you, you don't need to look to anyone or everyone else. Look to God. What has he given you and put it to use? This is the question I want to ask out of this section. What do you need to do to focus more on where you are in God's eyes and less on where you stand in comparison to others? What do you need to do to focus more on where you are in God's eyes and less on comparison with others. In other words, how do you learn to mind your business? <laughs> we all need to mind our business because we got enough business to mind that we can't even waste time on trying to mind someone else's. Mind your business. Now the second piece after uh, this, God reveals his loving care. The second piece is this. God expects you to steward His grace. There's an expectation, a righteous expectation, from God when He has graced you and blessed you and given you whatever it is that He has given you, that there's going to be a reward for that, on that. A, a, a wise businessman is looking at his ROI, his return on investment. 
I put this much in, I invested this much, I expect something out of it. God is the wisest businessman ever. And he pours out his gifts and he rightly expects from you and from me a return on that. And so God expects you to steward his grace well. Now, now let me say this to you as we enter into this section. God always, always rewards good stewardship. And some of you say, well, I have not experienced that. I've been working real hard, and, you know, they just told me that, I'm, that my job is ending in a week. I've been working hard, and this has happened, and I've been working on this, and I've been giving uh, to the Lord's work, and yet it seems like my funds are drying up. I've tried my best to be faithful, but I... I'm not seeing the result of that, but I want to tell you again, God always rewards good stewardship. We'll see in a minute why we miss it sometimes, but he always does. So as we talk about stewardship, what is it that we're talking about with stewardship? It's simply that stewardship is the job of taking care of, managing, or supervising something that does not belong to you. The steward is given the task of, see, of seeing that the assets of the owner are properly taken care of and enhanced for the good of the owner. See, a steward understands that nothing that they have belongs to them. And brother or sister in Christ, if you understand anything about God or your relationship with Him, you need to understand this. Nothing you have is yours to do with what you want with it. Nothing that you have belongs to you. When we say my money, I know what we mean by that, but don't be fooled to think that that money actually belongs to you in such a way that you can just decide how to use it. That money that God gave you the power to earn or was given to you by someone else, however you've received it, is, is the Lord's. And you're a steward of that to use it in such a way that God would be glorified. Everything that you have, every relationship that you have. I'm the father of three children, and I say those are my children. And I know that they are. The tests prove everything. They're my kids. They're, we didn't have to test them. They just look so pretty they had to be my kids, right? That's not even true, but I have some beautiful kids, but they're my kids, and yet I recognize and realize that they're, they don't belong to me. I'm simply a steward of them so that my job, my role as their parent is to do everything that I can do in my power to point them towards the love of Jesus Christ, to live my life in such a way that they will see that my life is congruent with what I preach and what I teach, that I'm not one man in the pulpit or at church and a different person when I go home. I'm the same person. And that they see that and by God's grace to point them to Jesus Christ. I'm a steward of everything, an owner of nothing. And so God expects you to steward uh, his grace well. Look at verse 15. The very end of that verse says, Immediately the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. The good steward doesn't waste time. 
because there is no time to waste. See, if we say that we're stewards of everything, the most important thing that we have is time. And time belongs to God. It's not mine to do whatever I want with. So the good steward, as soon as the master leaves, immediately he gets to work. There's a sense of urgency uh, in that word. And, and he wants to be productive. He doesn't want to waste time because he understands that he's not the owner. He's simply the steward. And he wants to bring reward to the one who owns these things. So here's a second question for you today. What is one thing you could do in your life that would demonstrate that you see yourself as a steward and not as an owner? In other words, what practical thing can you do that would demonstrate, I know that I'm a steward and not an owner? See, people that understand, and I'll just talk about one point of application. We don't talk much about money uh, here, but occasionally we do. But if I think I'm an owner, then I can do what I want with my money. But if I realize it all came from God, it all belongs to God, then giving to God and giving to his church is no big deal. As a matter of fact, not only is it no big deal, it's the first thing I want to do. Because I wouldn't have the power to earn a penny without the grace of God in my life. So I want to give. And, and so many of you did that that helped make the Diamond Street Festival such an incredible uh, experience for our community here as a church and the community of uh, this neighborhood. And that came out of people recognizing and realizing, I can give here. I have an opportunity to bless the people in the Diamond Street community because I don't own this money. God does. It's all, it all belongs to God. But again, God always rewards good stewardship. But why is it we struggle with that? Well, look at verse 19. It's an important verse to really get in your heart. Verse 19, 19 says, after a long time, say with me, a long time, a long time. We don't like that long time. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. You see, our issue is that when we're being faithful, we want to see the return. We want to see the blessing. We want to see it pay off right away. Right? I, I don't need to wait a month or a year or five years or 10 years or 20 years or the rest of my life. Are you kidding me? We live in an age where when we do something, we want to see it automatically come. We are Amazon Prime folks. And I heard, I saw that we had some drones at work at the Diamond Street Festival. I didn't even know that, but I saw the pictures. Either we have a very tall brother in the midst that I don't know about, or we had some drones going on there. I heard that, uh, that, that even Amazon is working on to where uh, when you order something, drones will actually bring it to your house uh, within hours. Now, I don't know how that's going to work in North Philly. That's going to be real funny. Oh, you see those drones? Boom, 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 boom. The drones are going to have problems in North Philly, I'm telling you. It's going to be very interesting to see how that works out. But they're looking at, and that's the way we want things in life. We want it right away, our way, now. But God says, after a long time. This is a parable of the kingdom of God. So when Jesus is talking about the master returning, he's talking about his return. After, look. 
He spoke these words over 2,000 years ago. He says, after a long time. God always rewards good stewardship. But most often, it's after a long time. And so that is the call to faithfulness in the middle of struggle. Faithfulness when things aren't going right. Faithfulness when there's hardship all around you. But God says, after a long time, you can bet on it. I'm coming and my reward is coming with me. And you'll get everything you need in that reward. So much more than you could ever imagine. My reward is coming. So in a world of instant gratification, that's not something we always want to hear. Look, I, I, I relate the Christian life not to a 40-yard dash or a 100-yard dash, but to a marathon. Like a 40-yard dash, even I could sign up for it. And I could make it 40 yards. Now, it, you may think I just ran a marathon because it took so long, but it was just a 40-yard dash. You can sign up for it, and you can show up for it. But I dare you to do that with a marathon. Just sign up one day, forget about it, race day, show up. I tell you, sometime between the sign up and the show up, you're going to be toe up because you won't make it through that race. There's no way you'll make it 26 miles, 385 yards. That's what a marathon is. I was looking at a, a training schedule for a marathon, and it starts light with little five-mile runs, then seven and eight-mile runs, and then 15-mile runs. Two weeks. It's a 22-week schedule to prepare for a marathon. In the 20, 20th week, two weeks before the race, you actually run 26 miles and then there's different uh, hills that you have to run different times that you have to run at different parts in your training regimen but you've got to do it consistently you can't skip a week you've got to be on it consistently and when you do it that way then your body is prepared to run that race but too often we treat the Christian walk like it's a 40 yard dash like we can sign up and then show up like, I can be in VBS, I'm eight years old, and I say a sinner's prayer and give my heart to the Lord. Then I walk and live however I want for the next 60 years. And then I think, I'm just going to show up. And when I die, I'm going to be at the pearly gates. They'll say, oh, we're so glad to see you here. That's not the way it works. And, and, and this, what I'm talking to you about is not works righteousness, it's salvation. Because salvation isn't a prayer that you prayed. Salvation isn't just an event that you precipitated in your life. Salvation in the scriptures is a reality of God taking up residence in your life in such a way that you are changed from the inside out. And that change works itself out over the course of your life in such a way that when you veer off course, and you will, and you do, but because he has bought you with a price and because his Holy Spirit resides in your heart, when you veer off that course, God will bring you back on course. The Holy Spirit will make you miserable in that other course. If you can walk away and walk your own way and it's no big deal, then I would cause you to go back and look at what has really happened in your life. Because if Jesus lives on the inside of you, you can't do that and just be okay with it. 
You're going to be miserable. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. But God calls us back to course with him. But look at God's rewards here. God's rewards are overwhelming. Verse 21. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. He says the exact same thing to the man with two talents as the man who had five talents. That's interesting because this great blessing, share your master's joy. Come, well done, good and faithful servant. This same exact blessing is not based on how many talents you started with. He doesn't say to the man with two talents, you know, your boy over here, he, he made five more. You only made two more. What's wrong with you? He doesn't say that at all. He says, you've been faithful with what I gave you. You didn't spend your life looking over the shoulder as someone else. You simply took what I gave you and you were faithful with it. The blessing of God comes uh, to those who faithfully serve with what he has given them. It's, it's not, what did he do? What did she do? No, God, what has God given you? And he calls you to faithfulness in those things. Luke chapter 12 and verse 48 says these words. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. So, so when you look at those words at the end of that verse, I just looked at the last verse there in Luke chapter 12. That means that if you've been given more, God rightly expects more from you. So get happy. Like if you got your five talents, you got all this stuff and you're happy about it, be happy about it. That's good. But get to work because he expects more from you. He expects more from you. Most of you know, I'll, I'll let the secret out for those of you who don't, um, I'm white. Just FYI, AKA, just so you know. I actually talked to somebody a couple weeks ago who listens to Epiphany Podcast. He saw me and said, you're white. I said, yeah, I've been that way most of my life. It's, it's true, I am. He thought I was a young black guy. I said, no, I'm not. I'm an old white guy. But, but we've heard this term a lot lately, and, and it's actually a helpful term to understand, and it's the term. Some people, especially people of my uh, lack of melanin, don't like this term sometimes, but white privilege White privilege is a hard term for some because they think you're saying a bad thing about them when you say white privilege. But the reality is, no, we're just talking about a construct that does exist in our society that I experience all my life that because I'm white, there are certain privileges that are extended to me and a certain disposition that I receive from others that has nothing to do with my good character or my good track record. It's just that I'm a white guy. My wife will always say, why don't you talk to the bank person about this? My wife is not white. Those of you who know my wife, why don't you talk to them? They'll listen to you. And, and, and she understands that. I understand that. Now, this is not to put anyone down at all. It's a reality. I have certain privileges. And it's, it's a sad reality because of the un, injustice and prejudice uh, in our society. But it is a reality. But the question is not do I deny the fact that I have white privilege. I can deny it, but I still have it. The question is what do I do with it? 
Am I going to use that for the glory of God or just use it to get more stuff for Larry? What am I going to do? Now, here's the reality. For every one of us in here, there are different types of privilege that you have. It's very different than white privilege. I'm not trying to equate anything. But for some of you, God has given you a good family. God has given you uh, resources. God has given you a good education. God has given you a job. God has given you a community of people that love you around you. God has given you and put you in a good church where you're going to consistently hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question for everyone in this room is, what are you doing with your privilege what are you doing with your privilege use your privilege for the glory of God and for his kingdom last part here your living reveals your believing look with me at verse 24 the man who had received one talent also approached and said master I know you you're a harsh man reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seeds. So I was afraid, I went off, I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what's yours. That's a nasty reply. He says, see, uh, master, I know you. I know you're a harsh man. That word is the word where we get our word skeleton from. A skeleton is hard, a skeleton is brittle. The word actually means something that is rough and unyielding. I know you're the kind of man who wants to get water out of a rock. I know you're not gracious, you're not kind, you don't love me. I know that you're a harsh man, he says of the master. Now, understand, this is someone as part of the church, one of the disciples. Jesus is speaking to disciples saying, this is how you feel about God. I know you're a harsh man. You reap where you haven't sown. In other words, you're a thief. You go raid someone else's crops and you take what doesn't belong to you. You, you gather where you haven't scattered. You're, you're taking other people's stuff. I know how you are. I know how you are. And we look at this man and say, man, that is one nasty dude. He's in big trouble. But here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to think about where this kind of mindset might live in your own heart. Where might it live in your own life? What this man is actually saying is a few things. Number one, he's saying God is not trustworthy. Number two, God is not fair. And again, he's probably looking at the man with the two talents and the man with the five talents, and he's forgetting, you just gave me 700 Gs, but I'm envious of someone with more than me. God's not fair. God's not good. At least he's not good to me. It's easier for me to say, oh, God is good to you. But what God wants you to say is, no, God has been good to me. God has been good to me. He says as well, I need to look out for my own interests because God will not. See the way he handles what he's, been, what he's received? Like, God is not going to take care of me. I need to take care of myself. Some of us think that way because of where we've been and what we've been through. Another thing is that God is always testing me in order to punish me. Like, we grow up and we have this conception of God 
that he's looking for me to step out of line so he can crush me. You don't understand. Jesus Christ was already crushed. He was crushed for your sin and for my sin. God's not looking to crush you. He's looking to save you. And the last part of this is this world is never safe. You see, this man treats the world as if he has to do everything in his power to make it safe. He can't trust God with it. Those who earned a reward based on their stewardship were able to take risks and do things because they knew even if the risk doesn't work out, I know I'm trying to do this to bless God. I'm trying to bless my master with it. So it might not work out, but I can take a risk. Because God is good. He's behind me. And if I fail, I learn. And then I'll try all over again. That's the goodness of our God. That's understanding who God is. You see, we accuse God. And we all can do that in various ways in life. But when we do that, when we accuse God, it's always based on partial knowledge. We don't understand things from God's perspective. So if you have ever read the book of Job, Job goes through 42 chapters, the first 37 chapters. Uh, after the first chapter, it's talking about the discussions between Job and his friends who are counseling him because of all the misfortune that's come into Job's life. He's lost his children. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his health. He's sitting there with sores all over his body. A lot of times people, uh, something small will happen to us and we'll say something like, I feel like Job. No, you don't. Job went through like you and I haven't even gone through. Job went through. And for all these chapters, for all these days, for all these weeks, this counsel's coming. And finally, Job even gets caught up in it towards the end and starts to say, you know what, this really isn't fair because I've done this and I've done that and this shouldn't have happened to me. But at the end of the book, God answers Job. And he begins like this in chapter 38. The Bible says, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, who is this that obscures my counsel with ignorant words? When God starts to talk to you about your ignorant words, it's not going to be good after that, y'all. He says to Job, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, will you inform me? Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He goes on to say this in verse 12. He says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place? So it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it. He goes on in so many ways to talk about his immense power, his perfect wisdom, his omniscience and all of these things. And what he's saying is... You are a fool if you're accusing me because you just don't know. And that's true for all of us. We just don't know when we accuse God. And so let's look at the last part here of Matthew 20, well, 25, verse 26. Let's look there. The master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. The word evil there is the same word used in the Lord's Prayer when he says, to keep us from the evil one. 
But he calls this man who accuses the master wrongly, he says, you're evil. You're evil and you're lazy. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful about our accusations against God. God takes it seriously. He says, you evil and lazy servant. If you knew I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I return. Verse 28, he says, so take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and to him, and, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. What is he talking about? He's not talking about the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. What he's talking about is those who believe and trust in me are going to receive an abundance and even more. But those who look at me and accuse me wrongly, even what they have will be taken from them. In verse 30, harsh words. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is language that's used in the New Testament to talk about eternal separation from God. That's hell. We don't like to talk about hell, but unfortunately for us, the Bible does talk about hell. He says the one who is accusing God wrongly, watch your mouth, watch your heart. Watch your heart. Let me close. I want to ask you this today. Have you resolved in your heart the goodness of God? If bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, and hardness characterize your attitude towards people, then you need to consider the posture of your heart toward God. Do you see God as a harsh taskmaster? Here's my question to you. Has your pain so affected you that you can't see, taste, or feel the overwhelming love that God has displayed towards you in Jesus Christ? Do you not know that the beating that he took, he took it for you? The crown of thorns that he wore on his head, he wore that for you. The piercings that he took in his hands, in his feet, and his side, he was pierced for you. The accusations that were hurled at him, the blows that he took from the hands of men, the spit that was spit out of the mouths of people that he had created himself, every little part of that spit that held on to his bruised and broken body, he took that on himself for you. And if that was not enough, when the father was at the point where he said, you know what, we've let sin go so long, but now it's time to pour out my righteous wrath and my judgment on your sin. And the father hurled his judgment at sin. It was Jesus Christ who stood in the way and said, I'll take it. You're right there. He said, you don't have to take it yourself. He took it for you. He loved you. He died for you on that cross. And if that wasn't enough, when all that was done, he said, you know what? I'm going to do this for you. I lived a perfect life, never sinned once. I'm going to take the credit for that and give it to you. 
So when the Father sees you, he sees you as perfect, as sinless, and as spotless in his sight. God's been good to you. God has been good to you. I know that life is hard. I know this difficult. People have been through all sorts of trauma and difficulty in life. I don't want to minimize any of that. But I, what I do want to do is to point you to this. God's goodness is over all that. If you look to him, there's hope in him and that he will reward all of those who steward their lives for him. So what do we do about that? The text tells us to live as stewards of every good gift that God has blessed you with. Don't miss it. Don't waste your life. Don't look at someone else's stuff. What has God blessed you with? Count your blessings one by one and use them for the praise, the glory, and the honor of the name of Jesus. I'm going to close with this quote from one of the hymns that we sung this morning. It simply says these words, His oath, His covenant, His blood supports me in the whelming flood when I'm overwhelmed by life. And when all around my hope gives way, He, Jesus Christ, then is my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the precious gift we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will work in the lives of every man, every woman, every child in this place. That, Lord, you would help us to see more clearly than ever that you are good and that you reward those who diligently seek you. So says your word. So, Lord, help us to recognize the good gifts that you've given each one of us and to trust you in the meantime of life with difficulties, with unanswered questions, with trauma, with all kinds of things, but we trust you, God. We hold on to your unchanging hand and we thank you for your faithfulness. Be with us in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.